0: My name's Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report, and what the telly doesn't tell you. This week, savage cuts to Britain's overseas aid budget. We hear from the former International Development Secretary, Andrew Mitchell, who, in a forthright interview, warns that tens of thousands of people will die as a result, not least in war torn Yemen. Britain is complicit in
1: a famine that is killing children. Children, there there is testimony of children starving to death, which is the most appalling thing in a world of plenty. And the fact that Britain, in those circumstances, reduces this life-saving aid by 50% is quite unconscionable. Unconscionable. And most people in Britain, faced with that, seeing the stark reality of that, would recoil from it and I think would be appalled that the government in their name was reducing life-saving, life-giving expenditure in this way.
0: And we hear from a charity that helps young women overseas understand contraception, the right to say no to sex and the value of education. These are services which have already been forced to take a backseat during the pandemic.
2: Covid has obviously taken a huge strain on health systems around the world. And the secondary impacts mean that sexual reproductive health and rights services have fallen by the wayside. And so for these cuts to come on top of that, it's just going to have an even more devastating impact. So I think it'd be fair to say we're going to see much more preventable deaths as a result of these cuts.
0: All that to come. First, a reminder that the Byline Times can report without fear or favour because we are funded by our subscribers, people like you, and we owe no allegiance to any media mogul, to any corporate interest or to any political party. We tell it like it is, as we see it. If you want to help fund good, honest journalism, a subscription to our monthly paper, the Byline Times, costs just £36 a year. That also helps pay for this podcast, our brilliant news-breaking website, and it supports Byline TV too. You'll find more details about how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Now, the Conservative MP Andrew Mitchell is rightly proud of the fact that when he was International Development Secretary, he helped ensure that the UK's commitment to spend 0.7% of its GDP on overseas aid was enshrined in law. That was in 2015, under David Cameron's coalition government. But six years on, Boris Johnson has reneged on that. Instead, the UK is now planning to spend just 0.5% of its GDP, which means a cut from around £14 billion a year to something closer to £10 billion a year. Now, the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, is blaming the cuts on the pandemic – but as you'll hear, Andrew Mitchell is deeply sceptical of that claim. He believes the cuts are based on a callous political calculation and will lead to the deaths of tens of thousands of people in the developing world. Mitchell is no Johnny-come-lately to this cause. Way back in 2007, he launched Project Mubano, a social action project with fellow British Conservatives in Rwanda. And he told me why the Cameron government had been so keen to guarantee that figure of 0.7% of GDP.
1: The issue that we were trying to address is this, that our world today is scarred by these extraordinary discrepancies of opportunity and wealth, which disfigure our world. And doing something about it is the great cause of our age. Why? Because we know in a way we didn't before. You know, there are no longer far off places around the world about which we know nothing. And it goes further than that, because if you are in that belt of misery that runs from the left-hand side of Africa to the right-hand side, and you are dirt poor and living without any education or health services, Yet you still know today what is happening in more prosperous parts of the world. And that is why across that belt of misery, there are three or four international terrorist organizations at work. And of course, this sort of deep, deep misery is a recruiting sergeant for listening to the terrorists' words. So doing something about these colossal discrepancies, which I described, is the great cause of our age. And what we are seeking to do is to make the world safer and less conflict-ridden and also more prosperous. And by doing that in far-flung places, we also make Britain more safe and more prosperous. You know, tackling disorder and ungoverned space in Somalia where recently there were more British passport holders training in terrorist camps than there were in Afghanistan or Pakistan, you know, makes us safer on the streets of Birmingham and London in the UK. So that's the cause. And the point seven, which was a promise Britain made many years ago, was to say that we will take this small but significant proportion of our national income and we will dedicate it to that cause. And, you know, British leadership in that respect has been very powerful. International development support has been going up around the world. And now, at the very point where Britain is relinquishing that leadership role and where we are going back on our word and our promises, Germany is now spending more than 0.7. The French have said that they will hit the 0.7. And of course, America is seeking, the administration is seeking to get through Congress an international development packet of $15 billion. So, so you know, we are relinquishing our leadership and going in reverse at the very time when everyone else has got the message that Britain, for the last two decades, has been trying to get across.
0: And politically, this was an important moment for David Cameron's government, of which you were part, the Conservatives keen to show a more socially liberal face and get away from the image of the nasty party, as it were.
1: There is some truth in that, but let's be clear. You know, when... For example, I set up this big project in Rwanda, Project Mubano, which means partnership and cooperation. I did it partly to increase the DNA of the Conservative Party so that there were people within it. And there, there are. remember, there are now more people who came on Project Mubano in the House of Commons than there are SNP and Liberal members combined. I did it so there was within the Tory party's DNA an understanding of what works and what doesn't work in terms of development, in a very poor country. And the the, the thing that David Cameron understood completely was that the DNA of the Conservative Party was not broad enough and wide enough to attract people to our cause. And remember, it was 23 years. It was 1992 until 2015 before the Tory party again got a majority in the House of Commons. So David realised you have to expand the DNA of the party. And, you know, for now in the Conservative Party, we have to be careful we don't go back and narrow that DNA because we've already told the pro-Europeans that we're we're not interested in their views. We're now telling the development supporters and the internationalists that we're not interested in what they have to say. If we're not careful, we'll get back to the very problem. that uh, that David Cameron wrestled with. But although the media said at the time it was all about cleaning up the the party's nasty image, that the the project in Rwanda would be a uh, one-year only. In fact, it lasted for 10 years, and David Cameron meant it, and I meant it. We realised that Britain is a rich country which has an obligation, particularly as a member of the Security Council, one of the permanent five members of it, We have an example to set, we have a leadership to give, and it's in our national interest as well as the people we're trying to help.
0: As International Development Secretary, you will have seen some of these projects on the ground, and you've mentioned one in particular in Rwanda. For people who struggle to understand the value of British Overseas Aid, just give us a sense of what a project might look like and what it might achieve.
1: I've never forgotten going to the northern part of Uganda, a very arid, poor place called Karamoja, where there were about two million people who for years and years had been on food support. And I went there and I saw a group of children lined up. I mean, probably 150 of them lined up where the World Food Programme, helped by Britain and the British taxpayer, were were seeing whether these children were acutely malnourished or not, they were all starving. They were all very, very thin and very, and some of them were emaciated. And the way they do that, there's a sort of strap you put round their arms. And if it gets into the red zone on that strap, then they are severely malnourished. And if you catch these children before that point, you give them a peanut substance called plumpy nut, and it costs about five pence. And, you know, within half an hour, they'll be running around and playing football. So if you catch them in time, It's very cheap and quick to to put them right. If you go beyond that point, then they have to have a drip up. They have to be put in a clinic, uh, sometimes for more than five or six days, and it costs about £200. So, you know, this was a very important investigation. And I watched these kids coming forward. And it's impossible, you know, whether or not you have children of your own, not to be deeply moved by that. And as a result, what Britain did was we combined with the World Food Programme. And we said for three years, for those... In that part of the world for three years, instead of spending $25 a year on feeding each of these two million people, we will add an extra $5. The, the, the British taxpayer will add an extra $5. And we will go there and we will try and make sure that we can irrigate the land, that we can build reservoirs, that we can have storage facilities, that we can have feeder roads. And that all this creates the paraphernalia where you then get markets and you get entrepreneurs coming in. At the end of three years, we'd floated more than three quarters of that 2 million off aid and food support. It is the classic example of, if you give a man a fish, you feed him, but if you teach him how to fish, he feeds himself. Now I'm enormously proud of that initiative. This was British led, it was joint with the World Food Programme, and it really shows you the benefit of British aid and why Britain can be enormously proud of the efforts we've made in the past and why it's so important we get back to reasserting that position of leadership as soon as we can.
0: So in that example in Northern Uganda, you think you can point to a project where the British taxpayer has made a significant lasting contribution to people's lives?
1: Absolutely, and and the truth is that over the last 20 years, it's partly because of course, India and China have been powering out of poverty. We have managed to lift Enormous numbers of people out of the extremes of poverty. But with Covid now, we are going backwards. And in a way, that's a case for doing more, not doing less, as the sadly the British government is doing.
0: And so the government is choosing this moment to renege on Britain's commitment to deliver 0.7% of its GDP in overseas aid and instead cut it back to 0.5% of GDP, which is a cut of something like £4 billion a year. What's your reaction to that?
1: Well, firstly, it breaks a promise that was made on the floor of the United Nations, but it also breaks a manifesto commitment that all 650 members of the House of Commons were elected on just over a year ago. But it's doing it at a terrible time as well, when the need is greater rather than less. And I would make just two points. The first is that the 0.7 goes up or down with the performance of our economy. So it's no good the for Foreign Office saying you know, that in this critical economic crisis we're having to cut because the money gets cut anyway by nearly £3 billion because the, the 0.7 is 0.7 of a lesser figure. But the other thing is this that if you make a promise and if you then don't defend it and then you allow it to disappear, It doesn't say much for our values that we support internationally in Britain, and it doesn't say much either for our respect for the commitments that we make to the electorate.
0: What do you think it does for Britain's reputation in the world?
1: I think that it cedes to others an area of leadership upon which Britain has been hugely respected around the world. When Mrs May was Prime Minister and first met President Obama, He is reputed to have said to her, well done becoming Prime Minister, Theresa, and congratulations on standing by the point seven. And indeed, in 2017, when the election started, an election that didn't go particularly well for the Conservative Party, I remember that one of the first promises she made was to reassert, as David Cameron had and before him, Uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, the importance of this commitment and that she would stand by it. And also for my party, never forget, you know, the Labour Party talked about 0.7 for years, but it was actually the coalition and the Conservative Party that delivered it.
0: And looking at some of the individual examples that are emerging now, our aid to Yemen, which is a war-torn, famine-stricken country. UK aid is cut by half to Yemen. There's a 90% cut in resolution and conflict funding. You can only wonder what the long-term impact of all that will be, not only on the countries directly affected, but perhaps here in the UK as well.
1: Well, on Yemen, you know, the, the British public approve of humanitarian aid by and large. All the polling suggests that it's the aspect, along with water and sanitation, which has been cut by 80% in these recent reductions humanitarian aid is strongly approved of. And I think I am still the only European politician who has been into northern Yemen, who's been into Sada and up north to Sada and seen what is happening on the ground there in this amazingly beautiful country with quite stunning architecture. But as, you, you know, as I drove, was driven through the country, I, I saw people who were terribly emaciated and, and, and very thin. And I also saw the brilliant work that Oxfam, for example, was doing, where they'd done a deal with a town that they would reconnect their water if the town would allow them to put some some displaced people on arid, rocky ground and feed them and look after them, just outside the limits of the town. So I saw for myself what what was happening. I saw the starvation, but also the work that Britain was doing, British international charities were doing there. And on Yemen, the big picture is this, that there's a coalition that is pounding the Yemenis from the sky at night time, and which has blockaded the country by land, sea, and air, which is causing a famine. So Britain is complicit in a famine that is killing children. Children there, there is testimony of children starving to death, which is the most appalling thing in a world of plenty. And the fact that Britain, in those circumstances, reduces this life-saving aid by 50% is quite unconscionable. And, and most people in Britain faced with that, seeing the stark reality of that, would recoil from it and I think would be appalled that the government in their name was reducing, life-saving, life-giving expenditure in this way.
0: I know this is a bit of a grim question, so please forgive me, but is it possible to say how many people will die as a result of Britain's aid cuts?
1: Well, we said from the outset, and it's an extremely conservative figure because, as we will see, it is, it is vastly fewer than the reality. We said that this would cause avoidable death to more than 100,000 people. But there are now individual cuts which have taken place which will almost reach that of themselves. For example, the government has made a pledge that they will increase the number of girls going to school. We want to give all girls 12 years of quality education. That's a pledge that the government has made, which we, I'm sure, can all support. And indeed, this week at the G7 foreign ministers' meeting, a G7 pledge to increase the number of girls going to school has been announced. But what has Britain done? Britain has reduced by nearly half the number of girls that they will be funding in school. As a result of this millions of girls will not now go to school who would have done if Britain had stuck to its commitments so we are piggybacking if you like on the generosity of other G7 countries who have increased in the way I describe the support they're giving for international development and yet we are supposed to have the chair of G7 and be leading so we are absolutely not uh, doing so we are breaking our promises and we are a passenger On this journey and not a a leader but secondly we have reduced by 80 percent the amount of money that we are giving to water and sanitation and hygiene and you will recall adrian that at the start of this crisis we were all encouraged to wash our hands while singing god save the queen to ensure that we wash them sufficiently and we were told that hygiene washing your hands is absolutely critical to warding off this pernicious epidemic and yet Britain is cutting by 80% in the heart of an epidemic the money for water and sanitation and hygiene. And in terms of girls going to school as well, we are cutting back enormously the amount of money we spend on family planning. And that means there will be, as a result of that cut, more than 4 million unwanted pregnancies. And there will be, effectively, the result of these figures is 250,000 deaths among women and recently born children. I mean, it is the most terrible thing to do and the most terrible time to do it.
0: And you've talked about the geopolitical consequences of all this. I know that in the Sahel region of Africa, there's been great concern about the activities of ISIS. Is reducing or perhaps in some cases withdrawing British aid altogether going to help ISIS?
1: Well... Well, what you've got in the Sahel is 300 British soldiers deployed to Mali to combat the terrorists, but also you've got a withdrawal of aid to the region. Now, sending troops down hard power and withdrawing soft power and all the things that make life bearable is simply a failure of comprehension by those who are making the policy. What you need to do is increase significantly the amount of soft power you are deploying, which will make our soldiers safer on the ground and improve the quality of life for the people who are living there to the detriment of the terrorists'
0: message. But otherwise, it will be easier for ISIS to portray British troops as some kind of occupying force rather than being there to help the people.
1: The two go hand in hand, and and most people, it's why you find that very senior soldiers are opposed to the government's cuts in development spending, and why, for example, Donald Trump's Defence Secretary, Jim Mattis, explained to the President that when you cut development aid, I have to order more ammunition.
0: Dominic Robb, the Foreign Secretary, has said that the cuts to overseas aid are necessary, not least because of the damage caused to our own economy by COVID 19. Has he got a point?
1: No, because every other G7 country is increasing its spending, and we are all facing the same pressures as a result of COVID. And the British economy has not been worse managed than those other countries. And therefore, I don't agree with him at all on that point. And of course, I have no doubt at all that Dominic Raab will have fought like a tiger to keep the 0.7 and will not be enjoying these terrible cuts which have got to be administered. But this is a Treasury driven cut and it is not being done for economic reasons because we're talking here about 1% of the borrowing to combat COVID over the last year. It's not an economic measure, it's a political measure because they believe it goes down well in the red wall seats which is quite a patronising attitude, actually, to people in the Red Wall seats, who are always amongst the first to raise money through pub quizzes or car boot sales. When these terrible tragedies take place around the world and there's flooding or famine, you see people in the Red Wall seats really wanting Britain to put its shoulder to the wheel and go to their risk.
0: So you think this is purely a political calculation then? People in traditional working class Labour areas are more likely to vote Conservative if they think the Tories are being tough on overseas aid.
1: I merely lay the facts before you. We are talking here of 1% of the Covid expenditure and borrowing in the last year and It was the only cut that was announced in what was otherwise a very good comprehensive spending review last autumn. The only cut. And I don't believe you can draw any other conclusion that this was a political and not an economic act.
0: As someone who's been so passionate about overseas aid and for such a long time, Andrew, and as someone who got the 0.7% of GDP enshrined in law, how do you feel emotionally now that that progress has been reversed?
1: Well, it is being reversed. And uh, I'm obviously deeply dismayed about that, because one of the proudest moments of my life in government was when the Conservative Party, in spite of the great austerity we faced in Britain back in 2010, after the financial crisis, declined to balance the books on the backs of the poorest people in the world. And we're now doing the reverse. We're balancing the books on the backs of, of the world's poor. And I think that is completely wrong. But but the problem is that not only have we broken the promise on point seven, we have also abolished the Department for International Development, which was not just a bunch of civil servants. It was a sort of engine room that brought together the great thinking in Britain's university about tackling poverty, the think tanks that turn it into, turn that sort of theoretical academic stuff into policy. And of course, the great British charities which do so much good in the poorest parts of the world. And, and that engine of development and reform and bearing down on the extremes of poverty has been abolished. And you know, don't be in any doubt, even under Mrs. Thatcher, who was not the world's greatest fan of development, there was a development department within the foreign office. It was called the ODA, the Overseas Development Administration. But all of that has been smashed to pieces And the expertise is literally walking out the door as I speak. And it's a very bad day for the one key area where Britain was acknowledged as a world leader, as a development superpower. Not just about money, it's about many other things as well. And Britain was really doing good in the world. And it is that that is suffering as a result of the decision
0: that's been made. Andrew Mitchell MP, the former International Development Secretary, on the government's massive reduction in spending on overseas aid. But what do the cuts mean on the ground in developing countries who need our help? Let's take just one area that Andrew mentioned, sexual health and reproductive rights. The United Nations Population Fund, the UNFPA, has condemned the UK's 85% cut in funding for a programme which it says has the potential to avert millions of unintended pregnancies and prevent the deaths of hundreds of thousands of mothers and newborn children. They describe it as a betrayal of women and girls around the world. Becky Ashmore is a policy and advocacy advisor for the charity Plan International UK, which works with the UNFPA. They have projects in more than 50 countries around the world and part of their funding comes from the overseas aid budget.
2: So as Plan, we work with lots of different communities around the world. So we particularly work with communities where girls are marginalised, communities are living in poverty and they face many challenges in their lives. We work with them on a long term basis to identify and make changes to their lives. We partner with girls and young people at all stages of that, working with them to identify what it is they want to change and helping them achieve that. So, whether that is making sure more girls are in school and they're getting a good quality education, whether it is putting in place water and sanitation facilities and getting good adoption of Using those services right through to ending child marriages and changing the norms within that community that allows girls to have control over their lives and their bodies through to changing attitudes towards sexual and reproductive health. So addressing any myths and stigma that may come from using contraception helping change health services, so they're adolescent-friendly, making sure clinics are open at adolescent-friendly times, so making sure they're open after school, and really helping girls make their voices heard and be listened to by local decision makers.
0: And in terms of addressing issues around sexual health and reproductive rights and so on, presumably that kind of information, and perhaps i don 't know prescribing the pill or other forms of contraception can be life changing for many young women in these communities
2: absolutely, um, so, as planned, we don 't offer direct sexual and reproductive health services there's many great other providers that do that, but we really work in the communities to generate the demand and understanding behind these services. And allowing a girl to know that she is able to access these services and to good quality, scientifically accurate information so that she can make an informed decision about having sex, that she has that control and able to make those decisions and has a human right over her body and that she is able to access services that will allow her to prevent an unintended pregnancy
0: And I guess in some cases you'll be working with quite traditional communities, communities that are quite conservative in some ways. Do you get any pushback?
2: I think there's always going to be pushback when change happens. No one likes change, no matter what scale it is. So that's why it's really important that we work in partnership with girls and young women to identify what it is that they want to be changed. We're not coming in with our own agenda. It's very much working with them to work out what they want to see changed. And then setting up dialogues at a community level. So whether that's between mothers and daughters, fathers and sons, also do some great ones involving grandparents who often hold a lot of those norms within a community. It's then also bringing in community leaders to talk directly to young people so they hear their views and what they want to see changed. Also with faith leaders who hold a huge amount of influence within community, helping them understand what it is that girls and young women want to see changed and how they can help them do that definitely goes a long way to preventing some of that pushback and creating real long-term meaningful change.
0: In that work, how significant is the input of Britain's overseas aid budget?
2: The UK has a really important role in sexual and reproductive health and rights globally. It has been a massive champion. It hosted the London Family Planning Summit in 2012 and then again in 2017 and both of those were really key moments to bring together governments and partners from all over the world to make new and bold commitments, ambitious commitments on family planning and beyond. And so it plays a really important role to drive progress in this area, which it continues to do within the UN spaces, and it really backs that up, or has historically backed that up, through significant funding. And the UK, as a donor, has always championed a really comprehensive set of services for sexual reproductive health and rights. And it hasn't been afraid to fund what might be seen as some as like the more taboo topics. So safe abortion, adolescent sexual and reproductive health, periods and menstrual health. The UK has put that all together and really championed that, which as a global donor has really shifted progress and brought others along with it and driven commitments from national governments to improve their work and really leverage other finances from, from other governments, all of which come together to make a real meaningful difference for girls and women on the ground. It gives them access to the services that they need and deserve, helps strengthen health systems and really fits together that piece of driving gender equality so that they can access that education that they want and they can take that career that they would like. Or they can have the family they want for the amount of children they have, if they have them, with who they have them and how far apart to have them.
0: According to the United Nations, the UK government is now cutting 85% of its promised funding to the UN's Global Family Planning Programme. What? Real impact will that have on the ground?
2: It is a shameful decision that they have made, and it's going to have a devastating impact for girls and young women. I think UNFPA have estimated that the withdrawn money, so £130 million. I think what's even worse is they're withdrawing funding which they'd committed last year. So this is a double hit, and this money would have prevented approximately 250,000 maternal and child deaths. 14.6 million unintended pregnancies and 4.3 million unsafe abortions. Each of those stats is the life of a girl or a woman. We know for girls that unintended early pregnancies are one of the leading causes of dropout of their education. We know that education is one of the Prime Minister's personal priorities, which he openly states is his ambition to ensure more girls get a quality education. So cutting these services is going to have a direct impact on the ability of the UK to meet those targets. Girls and women not having access to the services that they need is going to mean more families will stay in poverty. They're not going to be able to break the cycle and take advantage of education or economic development opportunities. And I think the UNFPA statement makes a really bold point of when funding stops, it is women and girls that suffer living in remote and underserved communities also those that are living through humanitarian crises. At the moment, there are more people displaced than there ever have been since World War II. COVID has made that so much worse. We know that COVID has obviously taken a huge strain on health systems around the world. And the secondary impacts mean that sexual reproductive health and rights services have fallen by the wayside. And so for these cuts to come on top of that, it's just going to have an even more devastating impact. So I think it'd be fair to say we're going to see much more preventable deaths as a result of these cuts.
0: And I asked you earlier about your own organisation. You get funding from a number of sources, but the UK government's overseas aid budget is a significant contributor to, to that. Are you going to be able to continue all of the work that you do in all of the places that you do with these
2: cuts? I think at the moment, for our organisation, we're watching and waiting to see exactly where the cuts are likely to fall. We're still finding out. On top of the the impact of the cuts themselves, there's been a complete lack of transparency from the UK government about where they will fall and when. This just adds insult to injury and it makes it even harder to plan. So I think the reality is we are not going to be able to reach as many people as we would like to. And that is the same for the entire charity sector in the UK not knowing the information just makes it so much harder to plan and be responsible in what we're doing when we're working with these communities when a project ends you have a transition plan you don't just suddenly up and leave those communities you build out slowly so that they're able to continue sustainably work that's been ongoing whereas this just gives a cliff edge and that is going to have huge consequences
0: Obviously, the work that you do can benefit individual women, the communities in which they live, but they're also an expression of British soft power. What's your observation on how Britain will be regarded in these countries and in these communities if the work that you do and other charities like you do can't continue?
2: I think the UK is going to lose a huge amount of trust and goodwill from a lot of these countries. This commitment on UNFPA supplies, for example, was originally made by the then Secretary of State, Alec Sharma, on the floor of the UN during a high-level meeting on universal health coverage. The US administration at the time fighting progress on sexual and reproductive health and rights, and the UK stood there and made this fantastic commitment. It was the biggest financial partnership ever announced with UNFPA. And the UK was proud to stand there. I was proud to be British at that point when the UK stood up against a global rollback on gender equality. And for them to now renege on those commitments, how do we trust what they're going to say? These are now just empty words and broken promises. And it's going to take a long time to repair that trust.
0: Becky Ashmore from Plan International UK. Now, we did contact the Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office for a response. We wanted to know if cuts in overseas aid are legal, given that they haven't been voted on in Parliament. Andrew Mitchell MP has a legal opinion which suggests otherwise. We also wanted to know how they responded to claims that Britain is causing tens of thousands of preventable deaths by reducing its aid. We also wondered how Britain could claim leadership on the issue of women's rights and reproductive health in light of these cuts. We didn't receive a reply by our deadline. Before we go, just a reminder to please subscribe to the Byline Times if you can. It funds this podcast, our newsbreaking website, and it supports Byline TV as well. Get more details on how to subscribe to our wonderful monthly paper, The Byline Times, at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. See you next week.